And now, right to your hosts of Down the Garden Path, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing. Hello and welcome to Down the Garden Path, where we discuss down-to-earth tips and advice while doing our best to help you seasonally manage your garden and landscape. I'm Joanne Shaw, owner of Down to Earth Landscape Design, and with me is my co-host and co-author, Matthew Dressing. Welcome, Matthew. Good evening, Joanne, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matthew Dressing, owner of Natural Affinity Garden Design. As landscape designers and gardeners, we believe it's important and possible to have great gardens which are sustainable and low maintenance, we want to help you make it happen. That's right. And it's the last day of the month or last Monday of the month or our last show of the month. And we are rounding out the month talking about native plants. And we are joined by Anna Fialkoff from Wild Seed Project. So if you have a question about native plants, please share it with us at down the garden path podcast at hotmail.com. And I'm sure that uh, we would love to hear more about what you're wondering about as far as uh, native plants. It's kind of the hot topic these days. Um, so, yes. So um, I'd love to introduce you to Anna and she'll tell you a little, tell us a little bit about her. So welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm the Ecological Programs Manager for Wild Seed Project. And um, I've been here working with Wild Seed Project for about two years now. Before I was at Wild Seed Project, I actually was working in Massachusetts at Native Plant Trust's uh, botanical garden called Garden in the Woods. And I was a horticulturist there for six years. So um, as the ecological programs manager, I actually do a number of things at Wild Seed Project, including uh, working on, with partners, including nonprofits and for-profits, land trusts, et cetera, on creating demonstration projects to show people what rewilding with native plants can look like, incorporating them into their landscapes in public and private areas um, alike. And then I also teach uh, walks, talks, and workshops for Wild Seed Project and work on our annual publication, which um, is in the form of a guide for the last two years. Wow, so you have your hands full. <sighs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Well, I love that. And I like the walks and talks. That's a good way for people to learn. Um, so in your career, how, how do you feel like, because, you know, you said like eight years ago when you got your last job, I mean, native plants, I don't know that they really were in the forefront, but I'm sure you've seen things really change in the last eight years. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I've been working with native plants for even longer than that. I actually was, um, I worked at Project Native, which is not, uh, no longer actually a nonprofit anymore, but it was in Housatonic, Massachusetts. Um, and so there are people, there have been people, you know, advocating for native plants throughout New England for quite a mm -hmm. while, but, um, and Massachusetts definitely 
um, for probably a little longer than Maine. Um, you know, Native Plant Trust was an organization started in the early 1900s, actually. So it's um, a really old organization. But Wild Seed Project is relatively new and young, but we're growing pretty quickly. We're in our eighth year now. Um, and I think even since it was started by our founder, Heather McCargo, there's just been so much more buildup of awareness of native plants and people really trying to look for sources for native plants. Mm. Um, so more and more nurseries are opening up, but that that is still trying to kind of meet the demand that now yes. that all the educational resources people are finding there, there's still a, too high of a demand for the amount of native plants out there available for people, which I guess that's not a, a horrible thing um, uh, for the native plant folks. We, we sell seeds of native plants at Wild Seed Project. So that allows for people to get their hands on the native seeds, much lower cost than you would, mm -hmm. it would take to buy a plant. Yes. Uh, and they can feel empowered to grow them themselves, which is really exciting. Excellent. Excellent. Well, do you mm -hmm. want to tell us, you told us a little bit, but do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit more about Wild Seed Project um, and what you do there or what they the project does? For sure. Yeah. Wild Seed Project is a nonprofit that's really dedicated to um, inspiring people to take action and plant native species where they live, work, and play, and equipping our communities with the tools they need to do that. So um, we're really you know, trying to work at the community level and build a movement around native plants and make people feel like they have um, you know, the plants to actually do this, the skills and knowledge about what it means to plant them in the landscape and keep them thriving. And also just so that people can learn more about all the cascade of benefits that native plants have once you put them in the ground. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. So um, I, I could add on to that, that um, so what we do um, in effect is we sell seeds of native plants, like I mentioned earlier, and we do lots of educational programs like those walks, talks and workshops and put out an annual publication so that people can um, find those resources in, on a number of different levels. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier too, um, really showcase uh, through demonstration projects what it can mean to plant native species in people's yards and parks and gardens, even their front stoops or um, in a container on their deck. Very cool. I have a question about the seeds. Um, so just for those who are listening, um, you can, I believe you can get a lot of your seeds uh, from wildseedproject.net. You guys have a shop with some cool merch and a lot of the seeds there. Are they harder to start than, you know, the average seed that you're going to find in a big box store or your local garden center? Is there anything special that we need to do versus these other ornamentals that we purchased from seed and start from seed? That's a really good question. I actually think um, it's it's actually probably easier in my mind to grow a native plant from seed than it is a tender perennial or garden vegetable um, mm. because you don't have to do as much coddling to the native plants uh, as you would to you know keep keep the um, tender perennials and vegetables warm and start them in spring. With native plants, you actually um, can sow them in a pot in some soil outside 
um, in the late fall and early winter. So mid-November through January is kind of the ideal time. And some native plants can go a little later than that, some a little earlier, but generally um, they need that kind of cold um, exposure to the elements, the rain, the snow, freezing, thawing in order to break their dormancy. So the seeds, if you sow them um, at the appropriate time in the late fall to early winter, then they most of them will germinate by the next spring. There's a few seeds that take, or a few species that might take um, two years because they're used to just uh, sitting in the soil for a couple of years and going through two sets of years of all of the that, um, uh, going through all the elements uh, before they germinate. But for the most part, it's pretty easy. And once they germinate or sprout um, in the spring, you just need to make sure that they don't dry out. So um, just watering them, but leaving them outside is actually the best thing. And you don't need a greenhouse. You don't need yeah. to start them indoors or put them in the refrigerator for a period of time. It's actually really simple and straightforward. Wonderful. That's great, eh? Yeah, that's super, super easy. And so just again, because going with that coupling of I'm starting seeds, um, do you need any special soil? You say we can kind of plant them outside. If we're not planting them in the garden, if we're starting them in a container, do we use just kind of that peat-based kind of mix? Or do we want to use more of a, a, our native soil, just our ground soil? I would say use a potting mix that has, that's rich in um, compost and um, just an organic potting soil would be great. That stand, standard potting soil. Um, and you don't need anything special. If you can go peat free, that's great because peat has a lot of environmental consequences. Um, but it, it, you know, it's, I think, you know, hopefully over time we'll have more and more um, options for, for peat free soil mixes, but any sort of regular potting soil mix is just fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a whole episode, isn't it? To talk about the peat issue. <laughs> and, and I'm actually surprised it's taken this long because I've been in the industry a long time and I feel like yeah. we've been talking about it for a long time and people still ask, you know, where can I find a big bag of, you know, <laughs> So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I think that one has been one that's a little slow to change, but that, that is great. And so it's really good to know that we can just see, sow them outside. Um, you may, our climate, so, so you're in Maine now, so zone-wise, zone five? Um, yeah, we're uh, 6A, um, okay. so where I am in southern Maine. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I think even um, further south, you can do that. I think I would say start it, uh, start your seeds maybe in January um, so that you know that they're going to not, you're not going to have um, too much warm up before they um, okay. get started. It can vary a little bit by your region. So for the Northeast, generally, that's the best thing to do for our native seeds. Okay. Cause we're 5B, right, Matt? So now if it's there's snow on the ground so if you say january i mean typically there hasn't been really snow on the ground in january um but uh if there's snow you, is that okay or are we pushing the snow aside and then sprinkling seeds um yeah well you can actually you know i like to actually do the seed sowing itself in my kitchen or kitchen table or something like that so you can bring your pots inside and you don't have to have cold fingers while you're doing it. Um, do your potting soil, you, you know, smush it down in like a 4.5 inch pot, something like that. Um, 
and make sure it's nice and compact, then you take just a packet of our seeds. They usually have 50 to 100 seeds in the packet, um, depending on the species. And you just sprinkle the whole packet in because if you sow the seeds thickly, our founder, Heather McCargo, likes to say seeds are like teenagers and they like to stay together. Ah. <laughs> so sow them thickly, actually, which is different from what you're taught mm-hmm. for vegetables too. You don't need to space them a certain amount apart. Um, and then they'll all, you'll get like a bunch of little seedlings that will sprout up in the spring in the container and you can divide them after that. But so for continuing this with the seed sowing instructions, um, after you sow them on top of the soil, you just kind of let them sit there and you actually put, um, a little bit of sand on top about to the thickness of the seed. So for like a dust, like seed, like lobelia, I would do probably even no sand. And for something like a lupin, which is kind of the size of a pea, I would do about a quarter inch of sand. Um, that's partly to keep the seeds from kind of splashing out during heavy rains. Cause that is something that happens more and more these days with the downpours that we get. Mm-hmm. Um, And then you can put them outside and protect them with some rodent cloth, like quarter inch hardware cloth. That's what I use. Just making, making sure the creatures don't, you know, rummage through and eat them. Um, And then just leave them there all through the winter, make sure that they're exposed to the elements. So don't put them under an eave or porch or anything like that. And you don't have to add water to them or anything like that at the beginning during the winter, you just let them be. Nice. That is good. Cool. Much easier than starting to make plants. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. <laughs> oh. So tell us more about just kind of going around on uh, the website wildseedproject.net for those of you who want to log on and follow along. Tell us about your uh, pledge to rewild. What does this pledge to rewild mean? The Pledge to Rewild is an initiative we started in 2020, late 2020. Um, it's a movement that we wanted to build around um, helping people find the tools, the, the easiest path towards planting native species and doing it in a holistic way. So we think of rewilding as having kind of these three tenets. And the first for us, and I just have to preface this with rewilding has multiple definitions. Um, so our definition of rewilding is that native plants are the foundations of our local food webs. And we re- are really thinking of the plants as those kind of keystone species that help kind of keep the whole um, ecosystem in balance, uh, keep everybody fed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, the three tenets of rewilding are a more holistic approach in which, yes, the first one is planting native species is extremely important because they are the foundation of our local food webs. And second, um, thinking about changing our kind of harmful habits, like mowing and blowing and using pesticides and fertilizers to more mindful practices that support the planet's health and, and ecosystems overall and um, allow for all the different creatures to kind of complete their full life cycles. So leaving your leaves um, when they fall on the ground, not cutting everything back, leaving some for the bees for nesting spots, all sorts of things like that. So those management practices that you, everything that you do when you're gardening, a lot mm-hmm. of that is unlearning horticulture, unlearning gardening, uh, to, 
extent. And then the third tenet of rewilding is really just thinking about the people side of things, building a movement and thinking about all of our yards and our public spaces, any plantable area as part of a habitat corridor that allows butterflies and birds and other creatures to move through um, so that you're creating critical mass um, of area for um, all of these creatures to find the native plants that they forage off of. So a lot of our habitats, of course, have been fragmented by development. And I think we can band together and join um, as communities to make this um, a, a real movement where we think strategically about how to rewild. We can't do it in a vacuum. So mm. that's basically what rewilding is. And when people take our pledge to rewild, they get put on this map of, um, you know, your property or your site um, gets to be put on a, a rewilding map. So you get to see, you know, your greater impact in the landscape. And then you get emailed um, all sorts of really great tools and guidance in the form of 10 actionable steps that you can take to rewild your own site. So that might not be your personal property. It might be, or it could be a public park near you, a community garden. It could even be, um, like I mentioned earlier, your front porch, if that's what you have um, to plant native species in pots um, and then get involved with different community efforts. So um, that's rewilding in a nutshell. Okay, that's great. And who do you see as like, who is um, like, do you have a focus or a more popular? I mean, is it public spaces or cities and, and municipal here's municipalities, um, like local? Are, are you seeing that because homeowners, I mean, I feel like we are just like a drop in the bucket. And we really need, you know, communities, bigger government communities to buy into that. Oh, yeah, I think we're kind of thinking this as everyone and anyone. Um, we are, that's why we have demonstration projects that we're working towards. So some of our projects in the future might be um, a retirement community that's deciding to kind of mm. think about all the buildings um, and the grounds in their area and how they can um, change their maintenance regimen and um, plant native species instead of kind of the typical box stored plants that you get, like the boxwoods and the lilacs. Um, so that's actually, you know, one facet. So thinking about that from that community level, individuals in their own homes, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that not everybody owns property too. So I think get, getting participating in your community to do this is just as important as if you have your own backyard to plant native species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I just, so it's so funny you mentioned boxwood because I had a contractor say to me today, um, so if you have any jobs that need uh, a lot of boxwood, I just, I just got a good deal on a thousand of them. And I'm like, oh, good. The plant that we're all trying, all designers are trying to plant less of because mm -hmm. there's 35 insects that feed off of them and no other like reason to plant them. And he goes, yeah, I'm guessing that's probably why I got them for so, such a cheap, such a cheap price. So I thought that was kind of funny. So I'm like, yeah, you know, there he's thinking, oh, this is it. He goes, it was an impulsive decision, emotional decision. And I said, yeah, well, yeah. there's a reason why those were a good deal is because I think as the industry, we're finally, it's hard to get away from them because they do have, you know, a structure, you know, homeowners love them, but, you know, we're trying to get away from them. 
So that was kind of, that was kind of a funny conversation I just had today, you know, it's actually, that happens quite a bit as, you know, it's the plant they're trying to get rid of that. They, they give you a special deal. I think there's a town I will not mention the name of that (laughs) um, planted a ton of Bradford pears because of a deal just like that. Mm. And Bradford pears are an invasive species. Um, and they're, they're commonly planted street tree. I'm not really sure why, because Mm -hmm. (laughs) they don't smell very good. They, their branches break. Um, and there's, there's so many other species that could, could support more moths and butterflies and pollinators and things Mm -hmm. like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that sometimes it's just people don't know what other options they have and Mm -hmm. that there are other sources for plants and more interesting plants. So like, instead of a boxwood, you could plant an inkberry holly, which, Mm -hmm. um, I really like and support a lot of different wildlife through that. It's evergreen too. So it provides really dense cover for birds during the winter, the ones that are not migrating. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've mentioned all of these different resources. So where is it, are all these resources and all these tools just on a wildseedproject.net? Yeah, you can find a lot um, there. Our website is definitely uh, a very rich, has a very rich library of resources, including where to buy native plants, nurseries that we, you know, um, have have researched, as well as um, gives plant lists and plant designs for different situations. And we have a lot of different articles on all things native plants, not just seed sowing and growing, though we have a lot on that too. But I think if you take the pledge to rewild, it kind of funnels you through all those resources in a more digestible way. Mm -hmm. So I definitely encourage folks if they're just getting started with native Mm -hmm. plants to take the pledge to rewild because that's a really good kind of starting set of resources. Um, And it will provide links to articles and on our website and off of our website and um, different how-to resources for how to start thinking about all these things. Okay. And I'm looking at your Facebook page as well. And there's a lot of good, really good information. I was just looking at your offering an intro to designing with native plants, um, Mm -hmm. which I think was, have we missed it or is it coming up? Uh, Oh, that was in June. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we, a lot of the classes that we have, we do teach multiple times a year or year after year. And we always have new classes that mm-hmm. we you know bring on too, because we're always trying to keep ourselves refreshed and excited yeah. and interested at the same time as teaching the things that are the stalwart pieces that I think everyone wants to know more about designing with native plants. I think that yeah. can be one of the trickiest things. It's the biggest obstacle to people actually getting started mm-hmm. um, because I think you don't see a lot of examples for um, out there for how to plant natives in a way that's aesthetically pleasing um, and not kind of eventually going to become a little bit messy looking. But there's actually a lot of good tips and tricks in that um, class, as well as other classes that we teach for how to think about bringing in those cues to care for that that make a landscape look a lot more intentional. Mm. That's a good point because I think as a landscape designer myself, um, I and I've taken some you know native plant courses and you know the the speaker will like show a, a 
what they consider a design or a finished, um, you know, native garden. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the ditch. Like, like no one, like, honestly, <laughs> no one wants that in their front yard. So mm-hmm. I know, like, I know all the reasons, you know, and all the benefits, all of that, I understand it, but I'm dealing with a client who wants a, you know, a beautiful, you know, back front yard, backyard, that type of thing. And unfortunately they low maintenance, which I know there's a native part to that, that there are, they are no low maintenance because they do also need less, even as plants, right. Need less coddling than some of our um, non-natives. But I still feel like the, if it does look too messy or too unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I can remember like looking at the audience, like watching like all the faces, right. When I'm like, yeah, we're all going like, no, you know, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, like it, you can say, yes, that's native. And yes, it's good for habitat. Uh, but then I feel like people are like, well, that's okay if it's over there, but I don't want that in my front yard or backyard. Yeah. So I, I think that's great. If you have strategies for homeowners and designers to help, you know, for us to help our clients. Yeah. I think that that's definitely also a big obstacle to getting people on board with using native plants in their mm-hmm. landscape. Um, I think like there's so many pieces of that, that I think you could take, um, to kind of help with people who are new to this, who are not quite fully sold, especially Mm -hmm. on the aesthetics of it. Like thinking about there definitely are certain native species that are a little bit more gardeny than others, like the clump forming ones. And I think there, there's an argument that, you know, a lot of the native plant kind of purists will go for, you know, you don't want to plant any cultivars because right. they're not as great for wildlife. They're cloned. So they're, you know, they don't have genetic diversity and that's true, but I think you can find some middle ground where mm. maybe you have, if you do include some cultivars in your design, you can also have, maybe if you do have room, you could have the native natural species um, maybe in a more naturalized part of your yard or something like that. Um, or, you know, sometimes just going for the more dwarfed cultivars is a good, good way to go. Mm -hmm. The ones that where the, the fruits and the flowers and the leaf color is all consistent with the natural species that ensures that, you know, um, it's more, the plant is more likely to be good for wildlife than if those pieces are changed. Cause you don't know how that's going to make, um, the plant as, you know, more or less desirable for wildlife that feed on it. If it has a different color than the natural species or the fruits enlarged, maybe it may have less neck or, you know, less, um, sugars in it, or the the flower Mm -hmm. might have less nectar content. So there's definitely things that you can pay attention to and and select your, you know, native ours wisely. Um, but I, and I, I think like, you know, creating nice edges in the garden is a, is a nice thing to do as well. Um, sometimes mowing an edge, a really crisp edge around a backyard meadow is a good idea so that you can see that it's not just kind of raggedy at the edges and, mm. and um, the, the plants aren't just kind of like falling over. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a number of different things that you can do to make the space look more intentional. And I think it's just giving people the tools, some of those ideas that are going to help them to do that. I think no matter what, you're going to have to accept a slightly different aesthetic with a native plant garden from a regular ornamental garden. Um, You can have more formal native plant gardens for sure. 
but um, I think for the for you know the average person who's putting in their own garden, it's still going to have you know pieces that are just that you have to get get used to. Like if you leave some of your stems up for native bees to find a place to um, nest for the winter, you know, then I think it it is going to look a little different from mm-hmm. somebody's garden who's been cutting everything back to the yes, ground. Yes, yes. Who put it to bed, man. We, we've yeah. done multiple <laughs> shows every fall about that, putting the yeah. garden to bed, you know. <laughs> um, but I did want to go back to the nativars when you mentioned dwarf. You know, do, do you have some examples of some that you recommend that are kind of smaller that, um, you know, um, that our listeners might might be able to use and I might be able to use in my garden? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't have the research on whether these particular cultivars are as good as the nuptial species, but I do know that, you know, inkberry, holly, shamrock, um, it, it doesn't get as tall as the natural species. So it might get more like three to four feet rather than, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, six to eight feet that the natural species gets, um, it's a bit more compact. And that might be great for a smaller space or if you are really trying to mimic a boxwood kind of mm-hmm. alternative, a, lo- a really yeah. low to that really structural plant in the garden that's going to have year round interest. Um, another holly, actually, the winterberry holly. Um, Red Sprite is one that I, you know, it's used as a as a compact cultivar as well. There are other cultivars that, you know, I would be careful if you notice that you're your plant is um, keeping its berries throughout the whole winter and the birds are not eating it because mm. that means, you know, it might be pleasing to us, but that does mean that um, the birds are not finding it very nutritious or in- tasty. Um, and I would rather have uh, my birds eat the berries than, you know, see them all winter long. So usually mm-hmm. they, if they haven't, if the squirrels haven't eaten them earlier on, then the birds tend to wait until, um, they go through some freeze and thaw and the sugars tend to concentrate in the berries. And, and also when there's not much else that's left, mm-hmm. um, the winter berry doesn't have the sweetest berries. So I think birds tend to leave them for kind of late winter forage. Um, so those are things to pay attention to. If you do have cultivars in your landscape, you know, is wildlife utilizing them or are, are there pollinators on them? Are there um, birds eating berries? Are there insects on the leaves? And there's still a lot that we need to learn about um, some cultivars um, and, you know, maybe how much nectar content their flowers might have versus the natural species. So, um, or, you know, the nutritional value of that nectar. There have been some studies that have come out of Mount Cuba Center and graduate students that have done studies there, as well as Annie White um, at the University of Vermont. And so I don't know if you've had her on your podcast at any point, but um, no, but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those are some really great uh, folks to follow when learning more about native cultivars or native ours. Very cool. Well, as we round to the bottom of the hour, um, I will uh, jump in and do our little segue. I see there are some questions popping in. 
some people joining us. So I'm going to just stop and say thank you for joining us here live on Reality Radio 101. I'm Matthew Dressing here with my co-host and co-author Joanne Shaw, and you're listening to Down the Garden Path. Joanne and I enjoy hosting Down the Garden Path each week, bringing you interesting and relevant topics to help you achieve a great garden. We learn right along with you from our research and from the wonderful guests that join us on the show, such as Anna, um, I'm going to totally say you're wrong, Fialkoff, sorry, Anna Fialkoff. Yeah, you got that. There we go, <laughs> from wildseedproject.net. We're talking all about native plants, and Anna is packed with information, wonderful information. Uh, so make sure you stay tuned. Don't forget, you can spend more time with us down the garden path. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Down the Garden Path Podcast is our handle there. You can also find us on your favorite podcast provider. And while you're there, please hit that subscribe button to be notified of new content. And please don't forget to like, share, and leave us a comment. We always love hearing from our listeners. If you guys have questions after the show or comments you'd like us to pass on to Anna, uh, you can reach us and we will forward them to you. So you can always write us directly at Down the Garden Path Podcast at hotmail.com. And you can always check out our websites as well. Joanne at www.downthenumber2earth.ca and myself at www.naturalaffinity.ca. So for those of you who are just joining us, we are talking with Anna Fialkoff uh, from Wild Seed Project. So check out wildseedproject.net while we're on the topic of finding people online and uh, lots of different uh, stuff there. Um, and so we have a few comments and uh, questions. Uh, Rita wrote in a little earlier saying, hi, Joanne and Matt, very interesting show tonight. So I think a lot of people uh, are, are very interested in uh, native plants. They seem to be a little quiet. So that usually means they're taking notes and uh, <laughs> listening very intently. Um, Adam wrote, wrote in, and I think we, we touched on it a bit as well. Um, but maybe, Anna, if you want to maybe just quickly reiterate, uh, Adam says, hello, what is the best way to grow natives from seeds? Thank you. So the best way to grow natives from seeds, um, yeah, that it's actually most of our native seeds require a winter cold and moist period in order to break their dormancy or their hard seed coats and germinate the following spring. So that means that a lot of them like to be sown in the late fall to early winter. So mid-November through January is kind of ideal for most of them. There's some exceptions to that, but um, you're most likely to get some good native seedlings in the spring if you sow your native seeds then. Um, so you just put them in um, some on top of some well-packed garden potting soil in a container um, and you can sow them thickly. So lots of different seeds together. Seeds are like teenagers. They like mm -hmm. to be together. <laughs> That's a good thing to remember. And then um, put them outside in an exposed area where it's going to be exposed to some sun and wind and rain and snow and freezing and thawing and get all the elements exposed. Um, and make sure to put some rodent cover on top. So I like to put some hardware cloth with quarter inch holes on top and weigh it down with a brick or um, a rock and just let it be for the winter and watch your seedlings as they come up 
in maybe late March or into April. Sometimes people don't even get germination till May. So okay. don't fret if it doesn't germinate yeah. until May, um, depending on where you are. And, you know, it was a cool year this year. So some mm -hmm. of my seedlings didn't come up till May actually. Um, and then you just need to make sure that they don't dry out. So tuck them into a place that's a little shady um, for the remainder of the growing season and make sure to water them when they start to look a little dry um, and watch them grow. Eventually you'll be able to divide them and plant them into bigger pots. And then I like to plant them in, in the fall into the ground if they're big enough. But otherwise I can let them overwinter and plant them the following year. Excellent. Do you suggest you like when you're talking about putting them in the plant? Sorry, Matt. Um, do you like leaving them in a pot above ground or are we putting them in like we digging a hole in the ground and like setting the pots in the ground? You can actually set the pots right on top of the ground. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. You could put them on your deck as long as it doesn't have an overhang because you don't right. want anything covering up the rain that would right. hit them. You want that wow. rain and snow to hit them. So that really is easy, isn't it? Like if we don't have to baby them. So that's great. Yeah. So Adam, I hope that that helps. Um, yeah. So that's, that is great. Are there yeah. particular, like, is your, what's your favorite one to grow that way? Or what, what is, or what are people most likely to get the best success? Let's just give everybody a big, yeah. you know, that was um, my next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think no, most people don't get through a conversation about plants with me unless we talk about partridge pea, which is one of my favorite native plants. Really? Um, it's an annual plant that we actually have a lot of perennials in our native plant palette, but partridge pea is actually an annual in the pea family, of course, as its name describes. And um, you can sow that in the fall as well. Um, and then let that germinate in the spring. And since it's an annual, it will actually grow to maturity and flower and go to seed all in the same growing season, all in one growing season. And if you plant it in an area that has some exposed open soil and let it seed in, then it'll come back the next year. Okay. It'll be different individual plants, but you'll, you'll get partridge pea kind of coming back year after year if you have some open exposed soil, but that's a great plant because for so many reasons, because it will really, um, like if you plant a lot of seeds, it'll create a real ground cover, even the first year. And I like to think of it as a native cover crop. Um, so a lot of people will use it to help establish new meadows. I learned that from Daryl Morrison, who's a um, designer of meadows and, and prairies and has done a lot of great designs for different public gardens throughout the U.S. Um, and he always uses partridge pea to start his meadow. So you can even sow that one directly into the ground. You don't have to just sow that one in the pot. I, I think for most our native plants, you do want to sow them into a pot or a prepared kind of raised bed mm -hmm. of sorts. Because if you sow them directly onto the ground and just kind of scatter them out, then you're going to have a lot less likelihood that most of those seeds will actually germinate and grow to mature plants. You know, a lot of them are going to get washed away by rain, mm. eaten by birds or other animals, or just not find themselves in the right spot with maybe right. not, an, um, you know, we step on the them, right? Like then now, yeah, yeah, when you're gardening or you're doing something, you're stepping on them and, and things like that. Okay. Weed them. <laughs> Weed them out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so okay. just the partridge pea, um, is it uh, Cami Crista fasciculata? Do you know yeah, the Latin right. name? Okay. Yeah. I, I yep. just quickly Googled it because I'd never heard of it and it's absolutely stunning. 
Um, I yeah. saw a few pictures where it's just made, yeah, this nice little ground cover or this, this nice mounded, rounded, um, mm-hmm. full flower. Absolutely. Like I would stop to look if it was in a normal garden and wonder what yeah. is that beautiful shrub. Like it's And nice. it's not only stunning, it actually is like a pollinator magnet. Um, and it can really add a lot of wildlife value to a newly establishing garden because it has um, its flowers, which provide pollen for pollinators, uh, bumblebees and moths and butterflies, all sorts of creatures. But then it also has these little little things at the base of the petiole, which is where the leaf connects to the stem. Um, And they're called extra floral nectaries. They look like a tiny little cup that's red. And it has, you can see if you look really closely, it has a little dot of nectar inside. And there will be ants all over those beetles, um, other pollinators that will go, are attracted by the beautiful bright flowers, the yellow flowers, and then they'll kind of see that there's nectar and go to those extra floral nectaries to keep foraging. Um, and this is interesting because I think ants often have a, a you know relationship with a lot of plants where if the plant offers something else to the ant, it will kind of in exchange um, protect the plant from herbivory by other insects and even things like deer and mammals. So, um, because ants put out lots of different interesting chemicals as well. Um, so this, uh, this is a good relationship for partridge pea as well. And it's actually, there've been studies on it where it's been showing, showing promise to be kind of a trap crop for if you grow it near an agricultural area, it could potentially bring in some really good beneficial um, insects um, that will also lure in the pesty insects and okay. eat those, um, kind of predate those pesty um, insects. So um, it's a it's really great all around um, to plant near your garden, your vegetable garden, or in a newly establishing meadow. So I'll talk. Stop talking about partridge because <laughs> I could go on forever. About it. Oh, that's great! It sounds like it, it could do its own show, so we might have to have <laughs> you back, right? We'll talk oh, about yeah. the whole show. So that is good. It's yellow, which that creates a dilemma for me. This like anti-yellow flower crop, but, you know, that's a whole other show too. So that's okay. I know. I think the benefit might be worth it, um, <laughs> but that's great. So, yeah, but I think it's great, to, important to give everybody uh, something that's easy to grow and that oh, they yeah. see it success, right? Yeah. Um, Definitely. So Matt, there's a few more questions. There is. Yeah. So Shane has also written in. Hello, Joanne, Matt and Anna. Where are native plants sold? So Shane's wondering, where can he pick these natives up? Yeah. So um, our native seeds are sold on our website. So you can go to our online store, wildseedproject.net, and just search for seeds and you'll find it. and we offer over 75 species of native uh, wildflowers, shrubs, ferns, and perennials. Um, and then you can also learn more about other places to find native plants by searching where to buy native plants on our website. And we have a list of nurseries where you can find plants in different, you know, by state. So we have a lot for Maine because that's where we are. Um, and then we have other New England states on there as well as some states like New Jersey and Pennsylvania because there's some really great nurseries in some of those areas too. Nice. And you also sell the partridge pea seeds, I see, as well on your website. Yes. <laughs> for those who are out there, for sure. Um, and then we do have 
Um, hi, Joanne and Matt, just tuned in. Is there anything here in Canada like the Wild Seed Project? Mm -hmm. I think your guest is from the States. Thanks. Yes, they are. And Anna, I'd have to send that to you. Is there something like uh, the Rewild Seed Project or the Wild Seed Project up here in Canada that you know about? I am. I wish I was more aware of what's going on in Canada. Um, unfortunately, I don't know as much about that. I, I think you can look for um, a native plant society almost anywhere you are. Mm -hmm. There should be one at least. Um, but I do know that, you know, even in Maine versus Massachusetts, um, it seems like the more rural you go, the less likely there is to be as much of a native plant movement. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be concentrated more around highly populated areas. So maybe some of the cities in Canada might have some, uh, or like their surrounding metro areas might have right. some native plant societies. Okay, I can speak to that too, Matt. Um, oh, the David Suzuki. So there's a Butterfly Way project. Um, so, uh, so that is a foundation. I know I'm part of it, kind of trying to learn more about it. So I did sign up. I've got the little sign in the t-shirt, but I'm trying to, <laughs> to learn more about it. Um, but that is something that you can Google for Canada. So the David Suzuki Foundation, and uh, you can register for the Butterfly uh, Pro Way project. And sounds similar, like they're tr we're trying to make corridors. They're trying to encourage neighborhoods to have at least 12 gardens, butterfly-friendly gardens, pollinator gardens and that they feel like once you've got 12 in a, in a close proximity, you know, and then tacking them on and that that becomes kind of a corridor. So some of the things you were saying earlier on in the show that our listeners can listen back to if they joined in late um, sound very similar. So, um, so yeah, so that's good to know that there are, um, and you're right, I think the big cities and, and communities, um, there's lots of uh, a different um, organizations out there. And garden centers, I mean, most garden centers are trying to keep up um, with having uh, native plants. Um, the mm -hmm. challenge there is often on the shelves, native plants in the pot in the spring don't look that great and don't look like much um, and are often expensive. So starting from, from, from seed, I'm so excited about that to learn that they're more um, effective that way but I think it, it's something that it's an educational choice and you've got to realize like okay they might not look great right now but they will look good you know so they're very different from cultivars and hybrids and things that you know everything on the shelf is showy and pretty native plants kind of um, take a little while right to fill in and and to to show off yeah. so um, so that's something to so I'll keep you know my two cents on that side for everybody so but garden centers are trying to have that and and there is you know um, getting them ready in the volume I think the demand um, is coming and trying to keep up and there are some native plant only um you know, I'm sure in the US as well as Canada nurseries, but it's also keeping up with the demand because communities are starting like the cities and the provinces are trying and the states are trying to also buy from those same nurseries, right, for these projects. So there is a lot of demand and um, commercial projects or more parks projects there and they're, they're you know, the design might have like a thousand plants, right? So then when we want five, you know, there's no, there's not enough. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. I'd say if this, if you want to start a native plant nursery, this is the time to do it. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So uh, so yeah. So thank you for that question. Yeah, Frank. And just before we move on, I did want to just say um, two that I've used before. Just and I don't know where you are, Frank, but we're in Ontario. Uh, so onplants.ca. 
uh, is an Ontario Native Plants website, uh, as well as nativeplants.ca is a uh, Native Plants Perennials, Shrubs and Grasses uh, area near uh, Joanne and I. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you very much for the question. And we'll put all these um, websites as well, just in our show notes so that uh, everybody listening, if you're listening to the podcast or live right now, you can find all the links, especially to the Wild Seat Project uh, that we've got uh, Anna Fjellkoff on here from <laughs> us, if you're just joining us. And Anna, we have another question for you. Bill has written in, hello down the garden path. Uh, you talked about butterflies at the beginning of your show. Besides milkweeds, what else can uh, we use or do to attract them and help them? I love them. Thank you, Bill. So do you have maybe some other, some of your other favorite natives or other really strong butterfly uh, and or uh, native moth plants that we could be planting as well? Yeah, I really like this question because um, of course, any native plant with lots of, with showy flowers is going to be a butterfly magnet, the mountain mints, the bee balms, cone flowers, um, you know, like echinacea and um, other native perennials that you'll find in a sunny kind of meadow-like setting. However, you can also plant native trees and shrubs to attract moths and butterflies. Um, A Doug Tellamy, who's an entomologist at um, the University of Delaware, has done a lot of research on this and found that there's actually um, five significant genera of uh, native trees that um, support the most moths and butterflies because during not just their adult, the adult part of their life cycle, when they need to forage on nectar from flowers, they also have to you know, be able to eat during their caterpillar stages. And they feed on the leaves of a lot of our native trees and shrubs and perennials, of course, too. But if you plant oaks, oaks actually are the single um, most biggest supporter of moths and butterflies and other insects than Mm. any other genera. So any species of native oak, um, you know, I wouldn't plant the English oak to get as many um, of those species uh, near you, but planting those native trees. Um, Cherries is another another one. So cherries and plums kind of are paired together. You could plant a beach plum if you don't have a really uh, good size area for a canopy tree. And willows are another one. You could do a willow shrub, like a pussy willow. You don't have to do a big black willow tree. Um, Poplars and birches, as well as maples and and other species. Um, But those are the top five, the oaks, cherries, willows, poplars, and birches. Excellent. That is great. Great question. And, and trees, I think that's really important. And for designers and for homeowners, I mean, that's an often a big question. Um, you know, how, 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 I mean, red and red oaks here in Ontario are, are very popular. Uh, mm. You know, um, you need the space, though, that can sometimes be the challenge. So you, it's great that you mentioned like a pussy willow. And that's something that that would be easy to include in people's design, wouldn't it, Matt? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, pussy willows, I mean, if you have a rain garden, they'd be great for something like that. Mm -hmm. I think you need a little bit more moisture for them. Um, And there's other, you know, shrubs that host a lot of different wildlife as well, including those moths and butterflies. Um, Like uh, uh, native viburnums are one of our greatest um, groups of plants. (laughs) One of my favorite plants. Basically, (laughs) viburnum for the shade or... um, 
a smooth arrowwood for a wet spot or a, um, you could do a viburnum nudum, the smooth wither rod for um, kind of an average garden soil in full sun and it gets incredible fall foliage too. So there's a lot of beautiful plants that are also wildlife magnets. And mm-hmm. um, it's not just those uh, perennials with the, f- with the flowers. Those are really important too, but even more significant are a lot of our woody plants. And you can find um, trees and shrubs of varying sizes that can fit in a variety of different landscapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. I would love to talk about ground covers because that's an easy one for people, right? Because everybody has needs a ground cover. Um, Do you have some that you recommend or do you want to talk a little bit about native ground cover in the couple of minutes we have left, right? (laughs) Sure thing. Yeah, we actually have a publication we put out every year and the last two years it's been a guide. So our first publication last year that was a guide was Native Trees for Northeast Landscapes. And that talked about 31 species of trees of different sizes that you can plant in your landscape. And then we came out this year with uh, Native Ground Covers for Northeast Landscapes. And that publication goes out free to all our members. And then you can also buy it on our website, wildseedproject.net. But yeah, Native Ground Covers are just incredible because they will be the workhorses in the landscape that really cover the ground and make sure that, you know, your soil is not getting eroded, that you can retain moisture in your soil and um, suppress weeds as they come up and, you know, really shade the ground so it cools and keep that moisture retained. So I think one of my favorites might be um, golden ground cell um, or running ground cell. There's two different species uh, that are really similar Um, and they will those ground cell species, Pacara obovata or Pacara aurea, really great species that will kind of become ground huggers and knit together, um, moving from their stolons, which are like runners along the ground and really cover the ground. But then they, in spring, they have these daisy-like flowers that are yellow, actually, that bloom maybe about a foot off the ground. And they're really... Um, lovely kind of sun, you know, cheery flowers. Um, And they can handle quite a wide range of different, you know, soil and and moisture and and sun conditions. So if you're not exactly sure of your conditions, I think that the ground cells are good for you because they will do moist, sunny areas, dry, shady areas, and kind of everything in between. Um, Now, I know that yellow is not necessarily the color that everybody (laughs) loves. So I think another good one for, I think, a new native plant gardener who's not yet sold on um, the native plant aesthetic would be something like bearberry. And that is a beautiful kind of evergreen, um, actually a sub shrub that it's out on woody stems, but it has these shiny little small shiny leaves and blueberry like flowers and then red berries and that lasts through the winter. And you can plant that in any sunny dry spot um, and drape it over rock walls or it can be along a stone pathway um, at the edge of a sidewalk. Um, so it's a really good one for urban environments. Excellent. Thank you. I love that one. The barberry. I have it or bearberry. I have it all over up at my cottage, um, just natively around. And it's just so wonderful. Oh, so wonderful. That's wonderful. So we're as we reach the last five or four, three and a half minutes of the show, <laughs> is there 
Todd just keeps whistling. Um, is there anything, Anna, that you would like to give a shout out to uh, or promote or say about the Wild Seed Project before uh, we sign off? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I was just really grateful that you had me here tonight. Thank you so much. And um, definitely check out Wild Seed Project if you're interested in growing native plants. You can be new to native seed sowing and buy seeds from us and learn how to get started. And it's something that's accessible for everyone. And you can check out our different publications that we have or take a walk, talk or workshop with us. So we just want people to feel like they're inspired to plant natives in their own backyards. Wonderful. Wonderful. And we'll have all your, all those things in our show notes, as well as your Instagram. I know I found you on Instagram. So, and, mm -hmm. uh, and we already mentioned Facebook, so social media, you know, there's some good that comes from it like, and learning. And I love the idea of the walks and talks workshop. So that mm -hmm. is wonderful. Thank that you. Is wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us here and, uh, and spreading the word and helping demystify because I feel like people, you know, it's a bit of a mystery still about native plants for your average homeowner. You know, those of us in the industry, we've been hearing it for a while, but I think it's time it's finally starting to trickle down beyond milkweed. And I think thank you, Bill, yeah. for that question, right? Because the talk is, you know, coneflower and milkweed and bees and, and monarch butterfly, but there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of things in nature that depend on a lot of variety of plants. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for joining us. So yeah, thank you. Make sure you're checking out uh, wildseedproject.net. Thank you, Anna Fjellkoff for joining us here. Uh, check out their social media as well. Everything is at wildseedproject. Uh, you guys are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and another one uh, that I've missed because I've moved from the page. Twitter. No, Twitter, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm already shopping, and I've already pledged to rewild during the show, so I hope you guys nice. all do too. <laughs> and I signed up for the newsletter too while we were on the show, multitasking. Yes. Right? <laughs> we're so enthused. We, like Joanne and I, are already in. So thank you again yeah, so much. It's a great first step because, you know, you don't have to make any commitments. You can just kind of see what we're offering each month. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So sign up, everybody. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in here uh, on uh, Down the Garden Path, Reality Radio 101. Uh, next week is the Civic Holiday. Uh, it's going to be August 1st, so we are not going to be live on the air. We are going to play a repeat. And uh, August I, in the Garden. I, yeah. just, I think it's going to be August in the Garden. Uh, so catch up next week with a repeat. You can also find it, uh, if you can't wait till next week, you can find it on your favorite podcast provider with lots of other evergreen uh, shows and wonderful information there. So thank you again, Anna, for joining us here. Uh, on uh, Down the Garden Path. You're live on Reality Radio 101. And we'll see all of our wonderful listeners. Thank you for tuning in. See you next, or two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to Down the Garden Path with your host, Joanne Shaw, and Matthew Dressing right here on Reality Radio 101.